most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. Our special commemoration of the 100th anniversary of Armistice Day, 11th of November, continues this hour. Jesus Make It Stop, the title of Glenn Harper's brilliant series, which is all available on podcast, as I've probably mentioned. That's a line from a Siegfried Sassoon poem, the very last line. It's a punchy thing. Siegfried Sassoon, one of the uh, World War I poets, along with Robert Graves, he could write a bit, and Wilfred Owen. These three are addressed by Harry Ricketts after the commercial break. Uh, the War Poets and Analysed. Harry Ricketts is Professor of English at Victoria University and knows a thing or two about this particular subject. Some pretty powerful stuff and I think uh, also equally important not to forget are the dissidents, those that chose not to fight the conscientious objectors for religious or other reasons. We'll be regarding one in particular of those that had other reasons. Archibald Baxter, the father of James K. Baxter, went to the Western Front but did not fight. He would not fight. He was a pacifist and he suffered something called uh, field punishment number one, which is being tied to a post for a long, long period of time. He caught hell from his own countrymen, which is pretty appalling. But it's a complex issue, isn't it? I don't know. Well, anyway... Mark Scott is a champion of the dissidents and important to hear their story. And uh, it's a hell of a story. It's been depicted in cinema and in theatre and things like that. That will be the final save for uh, the uh, this weekend's, well, this evening's Weekend Variety Wireless special features on the commemoration, 100th anniversary of Armistice. That mercifully the guns went silent. Almost, almost. They're still fighting in Africa and the Middle East as well. Alright, next up, The War Poets with Harry Ricketts. You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. World War One. We know now in hindsight just how hellish it was. But, you know, do we? I don't know who it was who said it, but I heard it and I thought they were quite smart that poets do it best and the war poets are extraordinary and we're talking about world war one harry ricketts has written a book called strange meetings about the world war one poets basically a school of poetry you could call it uh you've also co-edited a book called how we remember harry lovely to have you with us lovely to be here harry of course from victoria university wellington somebody said poets do it best I agree with that statement what do you think I do too although if you remember your Blackadder from 25 years ago not more bloody poetry says Blackadder at one point 
when Baldrick, I think, tries to uh, recite his war poem. Yeah, but of course, I think the poetry is remarkable. It was often poetry which the poets who wrote it couldn't have imagined composing. Siegfried Sassoon, before the First World War, was a fox-hunting man by day and a rather closet lyric poet by night. But he was one of the ones who wrote the punchiest, sharpest poems only three or four years later from the trenches or back in billets thinking about his experience at the front. Or Wilfred Owen, who wanted to write beautiful poems. And it wasn't until he and Sassoon met at Craig Lockhart, the Shellshock Hospital, in the autumn of 1917, both there because they were medically unfit, Sassoon said to Owen, stop, you know, trying to write these beautiful poems. Write about the war. Write about what you've been through. Write about what you've seen, what you've experienced. And he just unlocked the door for Owen. This evening we'll be talking about Sassoon and Wilfred Owen because in the time that we have, well, we won't be able to do them justice, but we'll do them some justice. Rather than talking about the... Entire phalanx of uh, 16 or so. So Sassoon was writing pretty poetry and his life was, well, kind of beer and skittles, brandy and a pipe in the parlour after dinner. Um, Pretty much. He had 600 a year and he lived with his mum in the country and had a couple of hunters that he used to go out hunting with in the winter. You know, it was a pretty easy sort of life, really. Then he really caught the hell of the front line. Just tell us a little of his experiences. Okay, yes, I will. He joined up, like many men of his age and background, as soon as war was declared, felt that that was what you had to do. You had to be involved. We might now feel, gosh, didn't you think twice about that? But at the time, it seemed your task. It seemed your generation's duty. He went out to France. He befriended initially Robert Graves, who was another young poet, and... Graves told him that after he'd been at the front for a little bit, he wouldn't write saccharine verses anymore. He'd write something much tougher, and Graves was right. As soon as Sassoon saw friends of his being killed, he started to see the war in a completely different light and to write in a much tougher, more abrasive, class-renegade kind of way. His behaviour on the Western Front, it almost seems like he was mad no thought for his own life not so much out of bravery but maybe trauma can you tell us about that yes he had two nicknames Sassoon one was kangaroo because he was long-legged and he would sort of leap around the place and the other was mad jack because he used to go out on escapades into no man's land after dark and capture enemy trenches and do, as you were saying, kind of escapades. I suppose it was partly to test his own mettle. It was partly to be doing something. A lot of the war experience that we forget about is that it was waiting around for things to happen. Uh. There was a terrible inertia and boredom and irksome, petty rules to go out and do something really dangerous like masquerading around in no man's land, had an edge of excitement about it, which I think they got quite addicted to. Certainly after Sassoon was wounded, he was wounded twice, but insisted on going back. What was very interesting is that people like him, although they could at a certain point have said, 
I want a safe staff job. I don't want to go back. They wanted to go back again. They felt it was their duty to go back and to bear witness, to speak about what was happening, but also to lead the ordinary troops. They were officers. Wilfred Owen says in a famous letter that he wants to lead his men as best he can. Mm. We tend to think of them in a much more, understandably, in a a sort of quasi-pacifist way. But actually, they were active combatants. I mean, they didn't believe in the war in a larger sense, but they felt that they had to take part in it, that they couldn't opt out. Can you describe one particularly famous action of Sassoon, which seemed to be utterly suicidal, scattered about 60 Germans and then just sat down and read a book. (laughs) Yes, and then got told off for not reporting back that he'd captured the trench. Tell us how it happened. He set off with other people and he, he discovered a trench. He scared off the Germans. He was a huntsman. He did a kind of hunting call. And as you say, he sat down, pulled out a book of poetry and read it. And then after a while, decided, well, he'd better go back to his own lines without informing or finding a way of informing the authorities that he'd actually captured the trench. So he got a major ticking off when he got back. It was a characteristically wonderful, mad, Monty Python-like kind of um, event. But those experiences do compound and really did affect him over the Oh, yes, they did. He never escaped from the war. He lived well into the 1960s. But I think he's on record as saying frequently that he never really escaped the war. Mm. The war was his experience, his life experience, and everything else paled beside it. Speed glum heroes up the line to death. Still gives me a shake when I read the line. He's been described as paradoxically manic courage. On a raid on one of the enemy's trenches, it said that, uh, this is a quotation, he remained for one and a half hours under rifle and bomb fire, collecting and bringing back our wounded. Owing to his courage and determination, all the killed and wounded were brought in. That's just dumb luck, isn't it, that he's alive? Yes. I mean, it's almost impossible for us to to even begin to imagine how we would react ourselves Mm. if we were confronted with that kind of situation. If you think back to your Vikings, they used to go berserk, didn't they, when they went into battle, like a sort of manic possession. And I think something equivalent happened to some of the people who fought in the First World War, that they became taken over by a kind of manic energy which carried them through. Often, many of them were killed in, and it went away. But we tend to have some records of people like Sassoon, and the same would probably be true of Owen or Graves or mm. something like a kind of heightened invulnerability while they were actually in action, which would have stunned them if they tried to recall it afterwards or when they did try and recall it afterwards. Uh, Perhaps after seeing so many people killed around you or wounded, maimed, which is probably worse, you really do throw in your chances and say, I might as well just do whatever and que sera, sera, because what else, how do I save myself? I mean, the chances are low anyway. Yeah, you did become a kind of anaesthetised, I think. Yeah. It was a psychic self-protective mechanism which I'm sure came into play for at least some of them. Something uh, I appreciate with the war poets, Sassoon and Owen especially, they do 
write with huge amounts of pity and realism. The cowards. If I was in their position, I'd probably be a coward. You just don't know. And it's it's if the cowards mm. and the deserters and those that don't want to be there are somehow besmirched in history when in actual fact they deserve being written about. Yeah, that's that's true. The most imaginative, the most sympathetic, compassionate of these writers did manage to embrace a relatively wide range of experience that they had encountered. Sassoon, the attack. At dawn, the ridge emerges, massed and done, in the wild purple of the glowering sun, smouldering through spouts of drifting smoke that shroud the menacing scarred slope. And one by one, tanks creep and topple forward to the wire. The barrage roars and lifts, then clumsily bowed with bombs and guns and shovels and battle gear, men jostle and climb to meet the bristling fire. Lines of grey, muttering faces, masked with fear, they leave their trenches, going over the top, while time ticks blank and busy on their wrists, and hope, with furtive eyes and grappling fists, flounders in the mud. Oh, Jesus, make it stop. It's so short and so blunt, and just the ending just leaves you feeling punched, actually, doesn't it? Ah, I think that's true of many of his poems, actually, that he likes to win with a knockout punch. The general, he's a cheery old card, said Harry to Jack as they marched up to Arras with rifle and pack, but he did for them both with his plan of attack. Yeah, he he tends to score with a knockout. I I admire him very much. He's a bit more like a, a verbal cartoonist, I would say, or a poetic cartoonist. He draws a quick picture and then, like the best cartoons, scores a hit. Despite his reputation as an insanely brave soldier Mm. and his feeling of obligation to represent at the front, he famously wrote a soldier's declaration against the war, which got read out in Parliament. That's right. Yes, well, he came to believe by the summer of 1917 that the war was being artificially prolonged for reasons which were nothing to do with the original undertaking of the war. For instance, that a lot of munition magnets were making a lot of money out of it. And so he made this he made this stand, and it was read out, as you quite rightly say, it was read out in the House, House of Parliament. It was the direct reason why he ended up in the Shellshock Hospital at Craig Lockhart, because the army didn't want to court-martial him and make him a martyr, they thought it would be better if he was thought of as not being quite right in the head. He could have been tried for treason. Yeah. So soon, his second sortie at the front, he was shot in the head by British soldiers. I mean, that's not unusual. Friendly fire get a lot of people. Uh, that is a strong version of, mm. of things. Uh-huh. Some uncertainty. It's possible that he even stood up to attract fire. That's possible. There's a poem of his which rather suggests that. It's certainly true that once he got back to the front, this is probably the third time, the first thing he wanted to do was to go back out into no man's land again. That was what he wanted to do. I wanted to say something a little bit different. When we think about the First World War now, if we know anything about the poetry, or even if we don't, we tend to know Owen's poem, Dorkiet de Coromest, his horrific recreation of a gas attack 
Bent double, like old beggars under sacks, knock-kneed, coughing like hags, we cursed through sludge, till on the haunting flares we turned our backs, and towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched asleep. Many had lost their boots, but limped on, bloodshod. All went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots of tired, outstripped five-nines that dropped behind. Gas. Gas! Quick, boys! An ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time. But someone still was yelling out and stumbling and floundering like a man in fire or lime. Dim through the misty panes and thick green light, as under a green sea, I saw him drowning. In all my dreams before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. If in some smothering dreams you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face like a devil sick of sin, if you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues. My friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory. The old lie, dulce et decorum est, pro patria mori. But Owen has only really been the poet of war, particularly the First World War poet, the poet of pity. That's only really been the case since the 1960s. It is only for the last 40 to 50 years that we've had a version of the First World War that has been so steeped in this poetry. That wasn't the case really before that. You Were know, they Owen, not celebrated Immediately after the war, though? No, no. As soon as the war finished, Owen, of course, died within a week of the end of the war. But some of their poems, including Owen's, were published after the war, but the bottom fell out of the war writing market very soon after the war. And it was a decade before people started writing memoirs, prose memoirs. But people didn't actually want to read about the war in the 1920s or for much of the 1920s. They wanted to do other things. They wanted to have a good time. They wanted to forget about the war. Yeah. No, Owen wasn't famous. He was known by people interested in poetry, but he wasn't a celebrated posthumous figure at all. Uh, Sassoon became a forgotten figure. He was definitely considered a back number. And it was only the 1960s, with all the things that were going on in the 1960s, including the Vietnam War, protests, civil rights marches, that brought back an appetite for these First World War poets who seemed to be speaking to what was going on. The 1960s really rediscovered war poetry, and particularly Owen uh, Sassoon and Edward Thomas and Robert Graves and other poets. Sassoon and Owen, whom we're concentrating on, where did they write? In the trenches, at the front line? No, not much. I think Owen wrote almost all the poems for which he's famous, either at Craig Lockhart 
or while he was being retrained before being sent back to France. No, he wrote, he wrote them at training camps. Basically, they wrote behind the lines. Recently, there's been a discovery of new material of Siegfried Sassoon. What do you know well, about his, that? Well, his, his war diaries have now been put online. Anybody can access these. His diaries were published some time ago, but not in full. Uh, so they're available. They're now freely available and online and absolutely fascinating. Anybody who's interested in this should certainly go there. Anything interesting in particular you could tell us about? I think the most interesting thing is the feeling that you're following somebody day by day, blow by blow, uh, scribble by scribble, gives you that sense of sitting on their shoulder. I, I can't produce one one sort of single event, although there's an extraordinary description, which had already been published, but you can now read it online, of, of his friend David Thomas, who was killed in early 1916. And that was a big turning point for Sassoon. I, I went and saw Thomas's grave in northern France. Uh, that's a remarkable description. Sassoon has an extraordinary description of standing beside the grave while the service is going on. They had very brief services, of course, because things were too dangerous. If you want to go to a chilling moment, you could go there. And this, of course, was written on the front line, not the, uh, uh, yeah, not the composing yeah, that, of the poetry. This, that's these right. are his notes. Yeah, I mean... It, was, it would be easier to keep a bit of a diary. Mm. And, of course, people wrote letters while you were at the front writing poems. Some people might be able to do it under those conditions or maybe make notes for poems, mm. I would think. Another thing to say is that if you were at the front, you were somebody who knew they were going to be part of an action the next day, and this was going to be your opportunity to write back to your family, to perhaps your wife or your loved ones, what would you say to them? Would you want them to read a letter which said, I'm scared out of my wits. I'm just absolutely terrified. I can't possibly tell you how I feel at this stage. Would you, would you want to read that? Or would you feel, if you were writing that letter, that that's what you should send to them? I think it's quite an interesting question, really. I mean, it's not that you necessarily want to sound all gung-ho and we're the bravest and the best. What are you going to write to them? which in all likelihood they might be receiving this along with the news or after the news that you're actually dead. So what do you want your last words to them to be? It's quite an interesting question. However, it was um, the war poets like Sassoon that wrote to some extent, I think, on their behalf, the suicide of the soldier poem, Sassoon. Yes, they did. They did. That's quite true. Uh, and they did see that as their part of their role, I think, to try and speak on behalf of those who perhaps either couldn't or wouldn't speak for themselves. Suicide in the Trenches by Siegfried Sassoon I knew a simple soldier boy who grinned at life in empty joy, slept soundly through the lonesome dark, and whistled early with the lark. In winter trenches, cowed and glum, with crumbs and lice and lack of rum, he put a bullet through his brain, and no one spoke of him again. You smug-faced crowds with kindling eye, who cheer when soldier lads march by, sneak home and pray you'll never know the hell where youth and laughter go. I mean, I, look, I admire these poets fantastically. I mean, they're where my imaginative sympathy is. But uh, whatever Sassoon and Owen might have hoped, 
they were doing. I'm sure they genuinely did hope that they might speak for the ordinary troops. I don't think the ordinary troops on the whole would have thought that they were speaking for them. They were officers, remember. Just probably useful to remember that. However, wonderful and moving and imaginative and memorable Owen and Sassoon are in their poems. And, and, and sympathetic. Uh, sympathetic. And sympathetic. Too. And piteous. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, perhaps I might sign off with a rather poignant little anecdote about Graves, who, of course, survived the war. He was born in 1895, died in 1985. Graves had a very prolific career as a poet and also as the author of historical novels like I, Claudius. But he spent the last 10 years of his life probably with Alzheimer's or dementia, but he still had nightmares about the First World War as a man in his 80s, decades and decades after the war had ended. And he couldn't really put together a coherent sentence, didn't spend much of his daylight time knowing where he was, but in the night he was still tormented by nightmares of the war. What passing bells for these who die as cattle? Only the monstrous anger of the guns. Only the stuttering rifle's rapid rattle can patter out their hasty horizons. No mockeries now for them, no prayers, no bells, nor any voice of mourning save the choirs. The shrill, demented choirs of wailing shells and bugles calling for them from sad shires. What candles may be held to speed them all? Not in the hands of boys, but in their eyes shall shine the holy glimmer of goodbyes. The pallor of girls' brows shall be their pall. Their flowers, the tenderness of patient minds. And each slow dusk, a drawing down of blinds. You're tuned in. To Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. I'm wanting to do a little thing on the conscientious objector. Those that didn't want to fight and join that brutal mincing machine, which was the Western Front, and of course Gallipoli, one of our most famous conscientious objectors, and not for religious reasons, was a character called Archibald Baxter. He has been celebrated, theatre and TV, and in film as well. And we're talking the father of James K. Baxter, Archibald, pacifist. Listeners have been kindly invited to the home of Mark Scott, journalist and historian, to talk about the conscientious objectors without religious basis during World War I. Mark Scott? Uh, it's important to understand that Archibald Baxter was part of a much larger group of people who were um, conscientious objectors. And I guess I first learned about Archibald Baxter when I discovered that my name, Mark, I was named after um, one of his, uh, I suppose, fellow resistors, Mark Briggs. And, um, and there was another chap as well, Lawrence Kerwin. And these three bore the brunt of the, the efforts by the authorities to, to crush their the resistance to fight. But they were by no means the only people who fought against the military machine. Mm. We have this vision of New Zealand's history being painted pure khaki, with everybody stepping off and hand on heart out to fight for king and country, all dressed in, in jingoistic terms and so on and so forth. But in fact, the actual history is far different, and Archibald Baxter was part of just a much larger group 
of Kiwis who, who wanted nothing to do with war. How vocal were they and how powerful was that movement to not go to war? It was massive. In, in New, New Zealand led the world in passive sentiment. This is history that's almost unknown in this country. We had a situation where the authorities wanted to impose teenage military training, compulsory training on teenagers. And that was strongly resisted by teenagers, by the churches, by various movements of which Archibald Baxter was part. And the scale of this protest is hard to understand. It was extraordinary. What did it look like? In the space of a couple of years, more than half a million leaflets were published in New Zealand. Some 250 teenagers were imprisoned for refusing to attend military training. In the last year before World War I broke out, 4,000 teenagers were convicted for refusing to fight, refusing to train militarily, because there was a strong push before World War I to reject war. New Zealand was a social laboratory, and there was a strong move among very many people, churches, women's movements, to reject war. That is the, the part of our history that has been entirely neglected and, and, and pushed over in, in favour of this march of khaki. When war is declared... However, it is it, governments want to make it all or nothing. That is, we're completely behind it. They, any dissension is stomped on. It seems as though that has to be the way. The funny thing is, is that New Zealanders were polled in 1915 as to how many would be willing to serve, and fewer than half of those polled agreed to serve. There was not a desire to go out and serve king and country, which is precisely why conscription had to be imposed. New Zealanders didn't want to go and fight, the, fight for empire. That's why conscription was imposed. And the tragedy about the whole thing in which Archibald Baxter writes about is that these teenagers who were, who were being imprisoned, who went on hunger strikes to resist the concept of compulsory military training, were within a, a short period of victory because you know, the efforts were Gandhi-style, passive resistance. They were winning the day. And then along came World War I, and that was it. Those young men were fed into the machine. And Archibald Baxter writes about having a dream of that, that all the saplings of the, of the forest, the young fresh wood of the forest, were being fed by the lords of, of, the, of the woods into the death machine. And when you see the kinds of things, the punishments he endured, in fact the punishments they all endured, the hardships they had over uh, under military uh, detention, Kerwin, Briggs and Baxter... They all spoke of the fact they were inspired by the example of these young men who had stood so strong. When did push come to shove regarding Baxter and these other passive resistors? When they refused to back down and they refused to, to, to fight, it was decided to ship them to the front and see how they would go there. Mark Briggs, in fact, was, was given a, a uniform to wear, nothing else, and he crapped on the uniform rather than wear it. Very strong resistance. Once at the front, they were subjected to number one field punishment, which was a kind of a crucifixion. They were strung by ropes behind their back. Their wrists were tightly bound and strung up from behind their back. And they were pulled up on these poles so that they were just on tiptoe, a stress position. And they were there all day, uh, for weeks, as a punishment to force them to change their mind. And they didn't. Briggs, in particular, was actually dragged on his back by a wire tied around his shoulders dragged through along the duckboards, the, the covered walkways, out to the front. These walkways were nailed with chicken wire, and so his back was lacerated to the bone as they tried to force him to fight, and he refused. They gave him a gun, said, go shoot the Germans. 
and absolutely refused. And you start to understand that. These weren't people acting in a vacuum. These were people who represented a very, very strong, determined history in New Zealand of anti-militarism. They were inspired by the actions of many thousands of people that we've completely uh, lost sight of. And what's happened is that this arid, sort of dry idea that our national character was formed by war has somehow taken over the real history. Prior to World War I, there was a strong anti-militarist sentiment in New Zealand and there were protests all over the place. These people were forcibly shipped abroad. They what, handcuffed? And How were they forcibly shipped? Oh, um, they were in prison, an, an ordinary prison. And as part of that, uh, I, I don't know how physically they were taken on board the ships to, to be shifted, but, but they were imprisoned. They were, okay. they were locked up. Basically. As a prisoner, shipped yeah. abroad? Yeah, they, they, were, they, were, they were shipped abroad as prisoners to Europe. Before that happened, did the families of these people suffer? What was it like in New Zealand? I could imagine those who have family that volunteered to go and serve would have felt extreme malice towards these bloody cowards. There was a huge storm of of kind of anti-German sentiment, and those who refused to fight were pilloried by the newspapers and by Parliament. And it wasn't easy at all. But the reality is there was also a great deal of support that we just don't see. We have to look carefully past the newspaper headlines of the day to understand what level of support there was. I mean, you can go back to the Boer War. Back then, even then, there were people who were were against uh, militarism in a strong way. Back then, out of a parliament of 54 representatives, six voted against any kind of uh, military adventurism in in Boer War. You might argue that seems a small number, but proportionally it's the same as the Green Party today. They represented a strong constituency of those who weren't interested in fighting or military action. If the pacifists won, we would have lost the support of Britain and New Zealand may have suffered dreadfully. That's got to be in the forefront of the argument against the pacifist movement. The, the fact is that World War I was not a battle of, about liberty. It wasn't a battle about protecting anything other than, a, than the interests of empire. And when what World War I led to which was the punishment of Germany and the reparations after the war, is exactly what gave birth to Hitler. And so the violence of World War I begat the violence of World War II. So begat the violence of the Cold War, begat the violence of the Balkans, and it's still going on in the Middle East. Absolutely. Had the global push for pacifism as the answer to the world's problems been uh, a little more successful, and had World War I been averted, it's highly likely that World War II wouldn't have happened at all. The pacifists who argued post-World War I for a kinder treatment of Germany to bring it back into the family of nations. And the warmongers were the very ones who, who, who rejected that approach. Mm. And, and it took till the Marshall Plan for that to happen. That's right. Yeah. After World War II, yes, exactly, there was the Marshall Plan. Was there any qualification to these people's pacifism that we don't want to fight an aggressive war? If we're attacked, we would defend? I can't answer that in any detail. No, I can't answer that. This group of people that were shipped to see what would happen, because they refused to fight, they were shipped to the front. Mm. What was their lot there in the time that they were there, and how long were they there? Baxter speaks of his time and their time on the front as being... uh, He he was quite kindly received by a number of Kiwis. He was by no way treated as a pariah by all the troops. There was some kindnesses and help that occurred for him that um, made all the difference. But both he and Briggs ultimately succumbed to nervous breakdown of some kind and physically 
that were in terrible condition and were shipped back to, to hospital. They were not left to die on the front. At one point, the authorities realised that they had to be taken back to, to hospital, evacuated. And what was their experience on the front, though, other than this field punishment number one and being dragged about on the front? Uh, I mean, they wouldn't take up a weapon. What did they do? They endured the same privations and hardships and bombardments of, of, their fellow, of the fellow troops. A lot of the time of, of, in the trenches, it wasn't about picking up weapons. It was about just being slammed by shells. And that's exactly what happened to these guys. They weren't kept in some isolated place back from the front. They were right up there and, and experienced shell fire and the whole works, the same as the fellow troops. There would have been those that were serving in the trenches that would have despised them. You said that they had support. I can't imagine there were, that would be 100%. Oh, no, 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 not at all. It was, but, and, and there were people who, who despised them. Um, there were particular Kiwi sol- soldiers and officers and, and NCOs who took, who took particular delight in inflicting quite sadistic punishment. I mean, they tortured their fellow Kiwis. How? Well, the, the field punishment process, beatings, insufficient food, the works. It's quite a lesson to see that, that actually Kiwis are, are quite capable of the nastiest things you can imagine against their fellow citizens. There are options for those that didn't want to take part in the conflict. Ambulance drivers were given Victoria Crosses. I think the choice these people made is that in no way, shape or form were they going to support the decision to go to war. Including being a runner. That's right. And in, 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 no, in that way, they, they were... Um, open to accusations of cowardice, but their belief was a, was a, a strongly principled one that they didn't want to have anything to do with the war machine in any way. Now, the board that considered conscientious objection in those times could understand religious objection. That was plain. They could understand religious objection, but they couldn't understand objection from the point of view of conscience, hmm. of human conscience. Isn't it incredible how much of a free pass religion gets? I mean, really... I guess it's, it's uh, religion causes wars and, and, and um, gives you the chance to opt out of them um, when, uh, if, it, if, it, if, you, if that's who you are. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. After the Great War, what was the reception like in New Zealand? Because such huge loss would certainly fire the uh, antipathy towards those that were like Baxter and didn't want to fight. Our view of the past is coloured by the RSA's vision of what it was. It's a past where we venerated the military, where we had short back and sides and we played rugby, and that's our history. The truth is that not only was conscription required to get people to go to war in the first place, but when people came back from war, they wanted nothing more to do with the concept of the military. The RSA positions itself as being the voice of our returned soldiers. That certainly doesn't apply to the Anzac period to the period of World War I. 80,000 servicemen returned from Europe. Of those, only 7,000 joined the RSA for long enough to get the benefits that came with membership. Thereafter, 73,000 of the 80,000 that returned from the war wanted nothing to do with the RSA, wanted nothing to do with revisiting the horrors of that conflict either as glory or as, or as any other form of pride. Most Kiwis, when they came back from that war, and you will know this, they will have grandfathers and, and so on who were like this, never discussed the war. The horrors of that war and the, the, the futility of it was so awful that no one wanted to talk about it, no one wanted to glorify it. 
They want nothing to do with the bloody memory of the war. I remember a neighbour uh, as a boy, Con Hall. He was stone deaf from the shells. He was a trembling wreck. You just go back in history in New Zealand and the small towns, there's always one or two old men who have been completely shattered by the war. And one of the big problems now, and this is where the works of Archibald Baxter and his fellows is in danger of being lost, is this weird concentration and romanticism about Anzac Day now. You've got Māori television pushing it as if it's some sort of holy grail. No, there was massive refusal to join the armies. There were mass protests by Māori. They didn't want to have anything to do with it. Half of all, of all Kiwis polled didn't want to do with it. And now it's been uncritically held as a, as a sort of one of the cornerstones of our identity as a nation. It was a shocking event, though, wasn't it? It did make us recoil from the horrors of the wishes of the empire that told us to go and do it. Well, Isn't that nation-building to some extent? If you undergo some crisis, then what's required to undergo to survive that crisis does help build a nation. But we've got to remember what was built and what the battle was. If we look back at this thing like it was some sort of horrible rugby game, there was pain on the field and now we've all, we're all kind of having a beer and it's all OK. No, it's not. No, no, no one learnt the lesson of World War I, which is that murder on the scale has uh, achieved nothing. Post-World War I, there was, a, again, a, a very strong pacifist movement in New Zealand, uh, anti-war movements. What do you do if someone's pro-war and they're knocking at your door? You don't send up the Spitfires in 1940? You box clever, is what you do. One little example is that the watersiders and, and trade unions in New Zealand during the 30s, in 1937, refused to load scrap metal to Japan because they saw they were conducting an aggressive war in Manchuria and China and they saw that that was going to be trouble down the line. The RSA types, no worries. It's interfering with, with the free market. Go and, you know, make the money. And World War, War Two was the war for freedom, it was the war where the horror of Hitler was so obvious that uh, there's no choice. You do have to fight for survival at some time. There's no question that World War II was a war that had to be fought. And won. Yeah. And won. What was it like for Baxter and his colleagues, families, during the war? Hard enough having your husband away, hard enough having your husband away and a prisoner in detention and imagining the privations, but were, did the family suffer... St- any stigmatisation, eggs thrown at the house, that sort of thing. It, it happened in Britain. I'm, I can't tell you. Okay. Uh, what, I can, what, I, what I can say is that in the South Island in particular, there was such a strong anti-war sentiment and such a strong anti-war community that there's no way that that had been alone. And that is the critical part of this, is that the, the IRSA vision of our history has hijacked the complexity and the truth of that time which is, and it's hard to understand this, pre-World War I, there was huge anti-war sentiment. Okay. Who writes the history? You find that, that newspapers like the Herald, who were extraordinarily pro-war and pro-military, just airbrushed out the existence of these people. Hmm. And you have to look carefully to discover where it is. I, I think it's extraordinary that the fact that 250 teenage children were given terms of imprisonment and went on hunger strike rather than have military training, I find it extraordinary that that figure is just not known in this country. Baxter looms large out of this group of pacifists that were 
forced onto the front? Because he wrote a book about it. Yeah, we will not cease. If, if he hadn't written that book, it would have just disappeared. Yeah, there's something particularly, particularly hideous about forcing people to, to go and, and fight uh, and kill in other countries when you're not in any way at threat. And we have to understand that about the Anzac Cove, about Gallipoli. We invaded another country. The adventure that we think should be a, a, a cornerstone of our identity as a nation was the unprovoked invasion of another country. The Turks suffered far greater casualties than the um, Australians, British or, or New Zealanders combined. How about understanding the complexity of our history and being proud of it than this sort of puffed-up lie that seems to be gaining strength, this weird mythology that Anzac Day is, is who we are? I hope it's not war that defines us, for goodness sake. For, for every Anzac Day celebration that we have, it should be a requirement that a crucifix be placed next to the stage of the kind that Baxter, Kerwin and Briggs were tortured on in World War I. Thank you all so much for your attention, your listenership this evening. A reminder that if you missed anything from Sunday, uh, we have a special uh, web available thing. If you go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage, you'll see, in case you missed Saturday, and pretty much everything from Saturday will be there, the same will apply. It'll be up uh, either later tonight or tomorrow. It will say, in case you missed Sunday, anything from uh, the program will be available there. And don't forget Clint Harper's podcast, Jesus, Make It Stop. All seven episodes for your downloadable entertainment, oh, entertainment, information, appreciation, however you want to call it. Okay, I hope you've had a great weekend and I will see you next weekend, Weekend Variety Wireless, Saturday starting at 8. And if you go to the Weekend Variety Wireless Facebook page, I'll give you an early heads up for stuff that's happening uh, that I know is uh, coming up when I do know. I think we'll have um, Sam Hunt, the poetry thing that'll be coming back uh, next weekend. It'll be either Sam Hunt or Tim Finn, depending how I get on with my travels. All right, new sport and weather next, and then talk back 0800 844 747. Thank you all so much.